Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. I am your host, Mark Melton. In today's episode, we will speak with Mark Royce about the Church's role in the European Integration Project that has developed into the European Union. As part of his dissertation, Royce examined how the historic influence of the Roman Catholic Church in various Protestant denominations in Europe helped some countries accept integration while others resisted. Mark Royce currently teaches political science at George Mason University and NVCC Annandale. He has written previously for Providence, as well as for The European Legacy, International and Comparative Law Quarterly, and the Journal of Church and State. When we first recorded this podcast late last summer, Paul Grav Macmillan was considering Royce's dissertation for publication. I am happy to report that it was accepted and will be released in June of this year under the title, The Political Theology of European Integration, Comparing the Influences of Religious Histories on European Policies. You can pre-order now at Amazon, and we will provide a link to this page at providencemag.com podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, whether through iTunes, SoundCloud, or elsewhere. Please leave us a review on iTunes since this will help more listeners find the podcast. And if you have any comments, tweet at us at Prov Magazine. Also, be sure to visit our website, ProvidenceMag.com. While there, you can subscribe to our print edition for $28 a year, or you can donate to help keep us going. For a change, yours truly produced this episode, but I'd like to thank Joseph Rossell for teaching me how to do so. Well, first, I want to thank Dr. Mark Royce here for coming into the office today. So thanks very much. And we are going to talk about your dissertation. Um, You just finished graduating from George Mason University with your Ph.D. First question I would like to ask you is, you know, what was your main thesis for your dissertation? My main thesis for my dissertation in the political science program at George Mason University was that within the European Union, the common market, the common legal structure, what we now call the EU since 1994, we discern a pattern whereby the historically Roman Catholic countries tend to be more supportive of this project, whereas the historically Protestant or Reformed countries tend to be much more ambivalent, if not opposed. You mentioned, I believe, in your dis- or in your introduction to your dissertation about how there's a lot of talk about the European Union from a materialist economic perspective, but yes. not from a. I think you used the word ideational ideas. Ideas, right? Culture. You know, what is the importance then of looking beyond the economics and looking more at the ideas and the theory? Well, that's important for any meaningful analysis of the social world in general, as well as important at the European level first, is the fact that at a more general level, Christian theology is the primary element of Western thought. Even if you're an atheist, even a raving atheist, you're still in dialogue with it, and it still shapes your worldview. So there really can be no meaningful analysis of the Western destiny or history or future without considering the intellectual inheritance of Christian theology in its various forms and manifestations. And so coming to the European Union more specifically, what we find as we dig a little deeper and go beyond the economic or the technocratic analyses as they're called, 
is that the religious inheritances and ideas are very much shaping this. Maybe the strongest case, and at this point really impossible to refute, is the movements of Christian democracy after World War II, where we find Alcide de Gasperi founding the Christian Democratic Party of Italy, uh, Dr. Konrad Adenauer founding the Christian Democratic Union of Germany, and then Robert Schumann in France. And so heads of government like these men, as well as the transnational movement supporting them, created this common market, this common uh, governmental structure and organization as a means in part to fulfilling a Christian ecumenical, but especially Roman Catholic vision of political and social organization. And this is very obvious if you look at the discourses of the Christian democratic movements. So you would probably have, I would imagine, some people who didn't grow up in a Christian background who would look at Europe and say, well, it's very non-religious. What would you say to people who would argue that because they're not religious, that the Christian heritage is less important? Certainly the main overall response to this justified criticism that I would make is to say that at the broadest conceptual level, the United States of America has religious people, but it has neutral laws. Whereas Western Europe has religious laws, but it tends to have unchurched people. So if you actually look at the laws of Europe, which is what my dissertation mostly consisted of, you will find that in the majority of European countries, some particular version of Christianity is established, recognized, or endorsed, depending on the word you want to choose, within the level of constitutional law. And it is at that level, constitutional law, as well as secondarily the Christian parties and their manifestos and their discourses, at that which you find the religion. I'll give you one powerful example. The Christian Democratic Union of Germany uh, under uh, Dr. Angela Merkel, who is still in power. If you actually read their most recent manifesto, you will be astounded at how Christian a document is. More than the Republican Party, more than the Democratic Party, the CDU party platform is about this is Christianity and therefore this is how we're going to organize public policy. That may be one of the strongest examples, but there are many others. So it's at the level at which you locate the religion that is different. In your dissertation, I remember you talking about people you know, following the Christian principles without necessarily practicing it, or like the ideas, you know, they become ingrained to society, even though people may not actually follow those ideas exactly. So do you see where the, like the residual nature of Christianity is still there in the thought and processes of the Europeans? Oh, I think that it is. That's my whole thesis. Um, my, my general sort of causal narrative, if you will, which you have to identify when you're writing a dissertation, is that the theological inheritance of the 16th century became embodied within the constitutional regimes of the 17th, and that on this basis was built the politics of European integration or of Euroscepticism during the 20th. So that was my main sort of um, thesis. In terms of your question about the Christian inheritance, well, Another major difference between the way 
we Americans usually think of Christianity and the way the Europeans do is that in Europe it is more sacramental, which is to say that it is more structural. Christianity, whether Roman Catholic or whether Lutheran or Anglican in Europe, or even Calvinist in Scotland, is based upon the teachings of the church, the structure of its sacramental constitution, the uh, prayer books that prescribe rites throughout the day, throughout the year, throughout the life cycle of the individual, and that this is very different from particularly American Protestant Christianity, which is more based on discipleship and more based on finding people out in the very core of their thoughts and habits. So, you know, um, stop using pornography now. That's not the sort of thing you just hear from a European pulpit. It's more based on these ecclesiastical laws and um, constitutions developed over several centuries, but especially the 17th. Do you think that the countries that had more of a Catholic influence were more in favor of European integration? Did they do so because the Catholic Church is naturally universal? It is naturally expanding across all throughout Europe, whereas the more Protestant religions, and I'm thinking like Church of England, Church of Scotland, and others, where they're focused more on the country that they came from, so you have less of a cross-border interaction. Do you think that could have had an influence on the peoples? That's actually the heart of it. I should have made that more clear earlier. But yes, the Roman Catholic Church is universal. It's cosmopolitan. It's transnational. It's not bound to particular countries. It's this overarching structure. And then that is secularized within the cosmopolitan supranational organization of the European Union. So Rome is the ecclesiastical version and Brussels is the civil version of fundamentally the same idea, European movement, uh, European integration, European collective order. Whereas the Protestant churches are connected with, in their origination and then in their development, with the nation states of which they are a part. And their spiritual mission and identity is located there, whether this be the cantons of Switzerland, whether this be the state Lutheran churches of Scandinavia or of the Nordic countries, or obviously whether this be the Church of England, I mean the very name, um, or the Kirk of Scotland, these are national churches and therefore they impart more nationalist, I don't mean nationalist as in crypto-fascist, but I mean nationalist as in of the nation values to their people, which is different from Catholic teaching and tradition. You've already kind of mentioned your finding, but mm -hmm. could you explain how did you come up with your finding that the Protestant-based countries were more individualistic and that the Catholic churches were going to be more, you know, in favor of the integration? So first I looked at testing the political theology of each country, and there I submitted each case to four tests. One, I looked at whether or not the country had a homogenous ruler and ruled sharing the same religion coming out of the wars of religion um, from the uh, conclusion of the uh, 30 years war in 1648. Second, I looked at the supermajority, that is three-fourths, of their population in the year 2000, okay, were at least three-fourths of the citizens sharing the same religion. 
Then I looked at whether or not there was the legal recognition of any particular religion. And then finally, constitutional recognition. Does the highest law of the land codify or establish a particular creed, with the last of those overpowering the others? And so there what I found was that in most of the European countries, a particular faith is established or privileged in law. And to give you a very brief tour of these, Italy, Spain, and Portugal all have concordats or treaties with the Vatican, give, granting the Catholic Church special privileges within those countries. In the case of Switzerland, you have 26 cantons, the majority of which establish both the Roman Catholic and what they call the Reformed faith at the cantonal level and grant those traditions special privileges. In Germany, the Southern and Western Lander establish Christianity as their state religion. The Northern Lander, the former Communist Lander, however, do not. Um, Belgium and Luxembourg and Holland are neutral as is France, because they had the revolution in 1789. And then turning to the north, what you find in the Nordic countries is that Denmark has a state Lutheranism, so does Norway. In Sweden, the royal family must adhere to Lutheranism or else they forfeit the throne. This actually happened once. <laughs> uh, Finland establishes Lutheranism at the legal level. And then Lutheranism is the state church, again, in Republican Iceland. Okay. Finally, in Britain, uh, Great Britain has two established churches. The Church of England is established in England, and then the Kirk is established in Scotland. So there are two recognized religions in uh, the United Kingdom. Ireland establishes Christianity, although not Roman Catholicism. So that in most of Western Europe, there is still an official religion. I think very few people understand this. Then the second major part that I did was I coded how integrated they are with the rest of Europe. And I looked at their respective allegiances in the European Free Trade Association, the European Economic Area, the European Union, and then the Economic and Monetary Union. And then what I found was that of the countries that have rejected uh, monetary union, that is the non-federal states, all of them est constitutionally establish the Protestant religion. That is Switzerland, uh, Great Britain, Denmark, uh, Sweden, Norway, and, um, and Iceland. So the Protestant states have kept themselves out of the common European system. And so what role do you think the churches played, you know, starting from the end of World War II up to today, like what role have the churches played in either enabling countries to integrate more into the European Union or kind of resisting? The most obvious role that the churches played was the Catholic Church under Pius XII, blessed, sanctioned, supported, if it did not create the Christian democratic movement in Italy and Germany and France for a united Europe. And that's that was clear enough before, but I make that more obvious in my dissertation. But even so, Christian democracy was a lay movement. In the uh, Nordic countries and in Great Britain and Switzerland, the Protestant churches themselves did not mobilize against European integration. 
um, in Britain, elite clergy in the Church of England have actually been for it. So the churches themselves didn't do very much, but the values on which those regimes were based conditioned people against collective European government. Yeah, during the EU referendum recently, mm-hmm. last June, Scotland is you know well known for being the most in favor of remaining in the European Union. And so I believe in your dissertation, like I did a quick search for Scotland and you kind of, you mentioned Scotland briefly here and there in the Church of Scotland a good bit. And you treat the United Kingdom, Great Britain as a single entity. If you were to go back and separate England and Scotland, would you, do you think you would notice a difference between like, because Scotland is mostly Protestant. There is significant Catholic um, influences, especially from Irish immigrants moving in. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, hold up, I have the numbers here. Um, okay, so 32% Church of Scotland, uh, about about 15.9% Catholic, and roughly like 36% non-religious. So, but I would imagine that even with the non-religious, like there's still the residue of Christian thought that's still there. Do you think, like, if you were to look at Scotland and England specifically, at those two case studies, that your theory would still apply between, you know, Catholics being more in favor of integration and Protestants not, or do you know? I think we might see that. I would begin a little bit, though, on those numbers that you Mm -hmm. had. There's tremendous uh, dispute among religious sociologists as to how reliable these kinds of religious statistics often are and what exactly they mean. Because when we're talking about the Middle Ages, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, so often these Catholic or Protestant or Reformed or Anglican identities, they operated at a subconscious level upon populations that very seldom travel anywhere else, that didn't have television, even if they had books. And so in many, in many, if not most cases, historically, they couldn't have really been, quote-unquote, quote been anything else mm-hmm. from what the religion that they were born into. So there's, there are often problems with these religious statistics and what exactly they mean, how meaningful. But turning to Scotland itself, the Kirk is the established religion in Scotland, brought there by John Knox, who was one of the early Calvinist reformers. Scottish politics, as you know, is an exceedingly elusive um, subject. What I'd probably say is that many of the disadvantaged regions, regions within European nation-states who have often had some long-standing grievance with the national capital, so that's Scotland with London, or the Basque Country and Catalonia in Spain, or Brittany in France, or um, Umbria in Italy. Many of these kinds of regions typically are very for the European Union, supportive of integration, because European policy has reached out to them, has thrown money at them, has uh, recognized their claims to uh, autonomy, to um, special consideration. And so these kinds of seditious regions, if you will, Uh, to use sort of an impolite word, are often for the European Union because it's kind of a a circuitous way of getting back at their own national capitals. That's definitely true in Scotland to some degree. 
So the Scots are for the European Union in part because the European Union, frankly, is against London. Okay, and so this is convenient, you know, for them. And where do you see the European going forward? With with your findings and with your research, I know this is a very controversial question, Certainly. I think, especially for European audiences. I think for Americans, it's more about just learning what the European Union actually is. But where do you what do you see going forward? My overall answer was that I believe that the European Union has reached its greatest extent. That European integration has proceeded as far as it can go within the near future, within our lifetimes, within what is possible within that organization. This is not to say that it will break up an imprecise word, often overused, nor that we'll necessarily return to the ominous and unstable days of the 1930s. But the different visions for Europe, whether German, imperial vision, whether French, sort of cosmopolitan supranational version, or now British vision, having left it, those competing national priorities have, I think, played themselves out, and they can no longer be further reconciled. 1994, with the Maastricht Treaty, that was the height of it. That was the summit, as it were, of the dream. And it will proceed no further than that, I think. Do you find within your research any recommendations for Americans who might be interacting with Europe? Are there any particular lessons that can be drawn from your research? Well, it, I suppose it depends on the foreign policy and, and depends on the context, but certainly the from a comparative point of view, I think that I would like to believe that my research is useful in really unpacking the differences between these regimes. So in political science and in Washington, we tend to grossly, I think, overuse terms like the state or the Western democracies. Whereas what I believe that I show in my detailed analysis of unpacking these different regimes is that there are really are some profound differences between them. Norway and Portugal are really quite different when you look inside the box. The values that framed the German constitution of 1949 are really very different than those that have framed the French. And I think that these internal differences very often get lost. So maybe that's not too applicable if you're in Paris on a honeymoon, you know, or if you're on, just on a mission trip to Scotland or somewhere. But in terms of understanding where these European nations are coming from, I would like to believe that my research would contribute to that. And even for someone who may not have a deep background in European politics can fundamentally read it and learn from it. How does your faith influence your work? I would say that my most important lesson that I have learned from my doctoral studies, which is, I think, very useful both for me as well as in general, 
is to arrive at a deeper sense of the fact that Christianity, our faith, it's organized different ways and different godly men and women, persons and groups, have examined the same scriptures and have arrived at different conclusions about how to organize the church. So whether it's Martin Luther who founded the hierarchical Lutheran church or whether it was the counter-reformed church of Trent or Anglicanism from Archbishop Cranmer or the Presbyterian committee system from John Calvin. These are all godly, righteous, sober-minded men and women who have arrived at different conclusions about how we should organize the church and build up the ecclesiology and spread the evangelion, the gospel. And so we need to be mindful of that and respectful of that. And I think that such comparative knowledge of different Christian doctrines and different ecclesiologies is rare. You don't get it in the public universities. They don't teach this stuff anymore. And even the faculty cannot discourse on the differences between Luther and Calvin, on the differences between Reformed and Counter-Reformed. They don't know it, unless it's their specialty. And I don't think that we're really teaching this in the divinity schools, or particularly the seminaries either, whether it's Reformed Seminary and Anglican Seminary, they read, the students read their own tradition along with, you know, St. Augustine and Universal people, but they don't understand it either. So I think that what I would like to believe my dissertation, now under review at Palgrave Macmillan, might contribute to, I guess, Christian discourse, is helping us arrive at a deeper appreciation of the different ecclesiologies that are out there, and that they're equally legitimate, expanding our horizons and hopefully also improving mutual respect. Well, thank you very much for coming into the office today. I'm glad we were able to do this in person over the phone, and good luck on getting published. All right, thank you.